to catch us up real quick, um, refresh our memories. We've been going through the book of Genesis. We went through the story of Abraham. Uh, We're still going to see the end of Abraham here in this chapter, but uh, from chapters 12 to chapters 21, we see God had promised this specific promise to Abraham about blessing his seed, uh, blessing the world really through his seed. We know that that seed eventually would be come Jesus Christ, but we also know there was a practical seed he was referring to in the person in the son of Isaac, right? The promised son. So we see Isaac brought on the scene in Genesis chapter 21, then in Genesis chapter 22, right after we just saw Isaac, finally the promise revealed, now God is asking Abraham to sacrifice the son of promise. And we learned about how that's a clear picture of the gospel and how Jesus is the lamb of God that fulfills that scripture. Then after that, we went through um, the tragedy and beauty of death. And we talked about death because the story got sad. Sarah died. We looked at that in Genesis, 20, uh, Genesis chapter 23. Um, then last week, we see Abraham sent out his servant to capture, not capture, to draw a bride uh, for his son Isaac, right? And he sent out the servant. We talked about how the servant was a picture of the Holy Spirit. Abraham was a picture of the father and Isaac, a picture of the son, which leaves Rebecca as a picture of the bride, which is really important throughout um, all of Genesis, really. But even as we dive into Genesis chapter 25, First comes what? Love. Then comes what? Marriage. Then comes? Exactly. That's what this one's all about, right? So we got love. We got Isaac falling in love with Rebecca. They get married, and now they're going to have two sons. This is in the latter portion of this chapter in Genesis chapter 25, and that's really where I'm going to focus the most attention tonight. So that brings me to the title of this message, A Tale of Two Sons. A Tale of Two Sons. And this tale is going to continue um, through the next few weeks, but we're just going to begin to see um, the beginning stages of, of this tale, of this story between these two sons that are birthed from Rebecca, Jacob, and Esau. Um, But before we get into that, let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We thank you for God, the church. We thank you for your bride, Lord. And I just pray that you would speak to us, God. We want to hear from you, Lord. That's why we're here. We want to connect with you, Jesus. So um, pray that this wouldn't just be Um, words uh, from me, but this would be your words, God, because we know that that's what changes us. That's what impacts us. Um, Lord, so bless this time. We love you in your name. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 25. 
Picking it up in verse 1, Sarah's passed away, right, two chapters ago. It says, Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Median, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephra, Hanak, Abadah, Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Okay, so we see here um, Abraham gets married again to this woman. Um, her name is Keturah. She's considered a concubine. Now, uh, when you look at the time frame and when this all happened, it seems that Abraham likely married Keturah after Sarah had passed away, okay? Uh, because we see all these sons that came from this specific wife, um, and they're all gone, um, if you look at verse 7, it says, Abraham was 175 years old. So all these sons would, have, would need to be born and basically kicked out of the house. When we get into the story, you'll understand better, within 38 years. Okay, so this definitely could uh, happen in 38 years. But when you look at the text and reading different commentaries and look at it, at what different theologians say, uh, there's some indication that Abraham wasn't married to Keturah during the time that he was married to Sarah, but he got married to her afterwards. Neither here nor there, just a fun thing to kind of dive into and understand. If you look at verse 5, it says, And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. We see that Abraham now has all these other sons with names that we can't pronounce, but now we have Isaac, a name we can't pronounce, and he receives all of Abraham's inheritance. Why? Well, we looked at the difference between Isaac and Ishmael, and as far as God was concerned, remember, when God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, he says, your only son. And Abraham, we know at that point, at least had two sons. But as far as God was concerned, he only had one son and the son of Isaac because that was to be the promised son. So the promised son receives the entire inheritance. Okay, so Abraham sticks to this because this is what God promised Abraham, that the blessings would be carried out and carried on to the promised son in Isaac. And look what he does here. Verse six, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Okay, so he doesn't just like, not give his sons anything. He gives them some gifts, but the entire inheritance belonged to Isaac. But look at what he does. This is really interesting. Along with the promise from God to Abraham that he was going to bless him, bless his seed, and bless the nations through his seed, he also promised him what? A promised land, right? The land of Canaan. So look at what Abraham does. He knows that. Remembering God's promises, he sends all his other sons eastward, away from Canaan, so that Isaac could inherit and prosper in the promised land. Picking it up in Genesis chapter 25, verse 7, it says, This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age. 
an old man and full of years and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried in Sarah's wife. Remember, this is the place that Abraham purchased to have Sarah buried. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Ber Laharoi. Okay, so we see um, Ishmael and Isaac come together for the death of their father. We so often see that death divides and it unites. It unites people, but it also seems to bring division amongst people. I don't know if any of you have experienced death in the family. Many of you probably have. What happens is the funeral comes and everyone comes together for the funeral, but when you start talking about who gets what... Who inherits the house? Who gets this? Who gets that? It divides. Death has this very weird thing about it. It it unites people, but it also divides people. And when you think about the most famous death that ever occurred in the history of the world, the death of Jesus Christ, that's exactly what it did, right? It birthed and brought together and united the church, but it divided the rest of the world. You're either for me or against me. Jesus said. So we either accept the death of Christ and are united with him, or we reject the death and the sacrifice of Christ and we choose the other side of the line. Pick it up in verse 12. It says, now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael. Pray for me. By their names, according to their generations, the firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbil, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadar, Tema, Jatur, Napesh, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements, twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. Now we see here, just as God had promised Hagar that there would be 12 princes that came from Ishmael, God fulfills his promise to Ishmael. He said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, and it's going to come through 12 princes. Now we see that nation still in existence today, right? And that's the nation of? Islam, right? Islam, Islam, uh, Muhammad was a descendant of Ishmael, and this nation still exists because God said it would. Now, it's really interesting when you look at Islam, and we could talk about it forever, but we won't. Uh, Muhammad, when he received these revelations from uh, the archangel Gabriel, um, he decided really, okay, which God is this? Now, there was many gods that that culture believed in, and he chose the God Allah. Allah was the moon God. He was believed to be the most powerful God, but he was really a a pagan God. He was a pagan pantheistic God. He actually, um, in the early uh, cultures and traditions, he had, he had married the sun goddess and he had three daughters. Okay, so what Muhammad did was he 
took this God that people were familiar with, these pagans were familiar with, Allah, the moon God, and he said, okay, let's say that this God is the moon God, Allah. It's really interesting when you look at this and um, how Islam was framed and fashioned. It started off from a God, from a, a pantheistic pagan religion. That's why their symbol is the crescent moon. Okay, He's the moon God. Allah is the moon God. He's not the real God. But this nation it exists not because they serve Allah, but because God said that they were going to exist here in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 25, verse 19, sorry, 18, they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. As you go toward Assyria, he died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Padan Aram, the sister of of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah his wife conceived. Look at back, back at verse 21. What did Isaac do? He pleaded with the Lord for his wife. He pleads with God. He prays to God for his wife that God would give her a child to satisfy her, to please her. Which brings me to my first of five points. Pray for your bride. Pray for your bride. Those that are married, how often do you pray for your bride? How often do you pray for your wife? Do you pray for her as much as you should? Do you pray for her even when you don't want to? Do you pray for her after you just got in a heated argument? Not that that ever happens to anyone in this congregation. Do you pray for her when you're like, oh, I'm so frustrated with her. Do you pray for her then? Do you pray for her when it really matters? Do you pray for her like Isaac, that she would um, receive the desires and fulfillment of her heart, that she would receive the joy of the Lord? See, for Rebecca, it was conceiving a child, but maybe for your wife, it's something different. Do you, do you pray to God for your bride that her joy would be full? Because Jesus, he prays for his bride, See, Rebecca, we remember, is a picture of the church, and Isaac is a picture of the promised son. He's a picture of Jesus, and Jesus diligently prays for his bride. I'll show you a few scriptures where we see this in the New Testament. And if you look at, if you look at uh, John chapter 17, John chapter 17, verse 20, it says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for us. We see another scripture in Romans chapter 8, and there's more than this, but I'll just point to two. In Romans chapter 8, verse 34, it says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ. 
is it, it is Christ who died and further, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Jesus is praying for us as we speak. He's praying for us right now. He's standing at the right hand of the Father, praying for the bride. He's praying for us to produce fruit. He's praying that our joy would be full. He's praying for so many different things. Sometimes we're praying things and Jesus is like interceding and intervening. Eh, they don't really mean that. They really mean this. Yeah, maybe they're praying for peace in this moment, but what they really need is a trial because they have to realize and learn that true peace can only be found through trial. So Jesus, he's praying for us. He's interceding for us. Maybe you don't have a bride. Maybe you're not married, but this is your bride. See, this is his bride. The church is also ours. The church we too should be praying for just as Christ prays for the church. How often do you pray for the church? See, I was thinking about this as I was studying this and I was like, man, God, how often am I praying for the church? Yeah, I pray for the church, but wait a minute. The church is growing. So is my prayer life growing as the church is growing? Because more people means more prayer. So I need to be praying more. If the church is growing, my prayer life needs to grow. Jesus, he's praying for the bride. We should pray for the bride of Christ as well in the church. And look what happens. Verse 21, it says, and the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Now, this is interesting. We just learned that Isaac was how old when he married Rebekah? 40, okay? Look at verse 26. It says, afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. God answered Isaac's prayer but it wasn't for 20 years later. It's like, oh my gosh, this seems to be a theme in the book of Genesis, right? People pray, God promises things, he answers prayers, but it's on his own timeline. So we could ask the question, and we've talked a little bit about it before, why is God waiting? Well, it says, um, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, but is long-suffering. So there's a certain reason in specific circumstances why God is waiting to answer prayers or fulfill specific promises. We can rest assured he has a reason for it. Maybe he's trying to produce patience in us. Maybe he's trying to produce perseverance in us. Maybe there's a character that he needs to instill in us because we're not ready for the blessing in the prayer being answered. Maybe that's why. We don't know for sure. And when I consider this, I honestly believe that God has promised me that we're going to have a son. And then I look at this. It might not be for 20 years. And I'm like, wow, God, that kind of stinks. If I don't have a kid for 20 years, I'm going to be in my 50s. Knowing me, how often I get injured, um, I'll likely be in a wheelchair by 50. I will not be able to play catch with my son standing up. I will have to play catch with him, teach him how to play sports from a wheelchair. 
that might be the truth. God has his reasons why he waits. Maybe I'd be a better father in a wheelchair, and he knows that. I don't know why, but God has specific reasons, specific purposes, and why he waits to answer specific prayers. 20 years later, he fulfills this prayer. Pick it up in Genesis chapter 25, verse 22. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Look what happens. These children are struggling together in her womb. There's a Jewish tradition that that Jacob... Um, and Esau actually tried to kill each other in the womb. There's also another Jewish tradition. It's not in the Bible. It's just tradition, but it's fun to talk about. Okay, there's also another tradition that when Rebekah would walk by a place where they were worshiping idols, Esau would jump up and worship the idols from her womb. And when she would walk by a place where God was being worshiped, Jacob would jump up in her womb. And so We see here this battle between the brothers. Now, we have to remember, Rebecca's a picture of what? Rebecca's a picture of the church. Jacob's a picture of the spirit. And Esau's a picture of the flesh. We, as the church, have this internal struggle too. We have this battle going on inside of us as if these two separate entities are at each other's necks trying to kill each other. It's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. See, in Romans chapter 7, Paul explains it like this. I'll summarize it. He says, I don't do the things I want to do, and I do the things I don't want to do. And he goes through this whole dialogue, and then he says, who can rid me of this body of death? He says, thank the Lord Jesus Christ. It's only Jesus Christ that can rid us of this body of flesh. So we know that this battle is existing. Paul says it in other words like this in Galatians chapter 5. And if you could turn there real quick, I'm going to look at two things in Galatians chapter 5. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, he says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. See, the flesh is lusting or fighting against the spirit, and the spirit is fighting against the flesh. Well, who's going to win? It all depends on who you feed. Which brings you to my second point. What you feed will grow. What you feed will grow. Feed the flesh... And it's going to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. Feed the spirit and it's going to grow stronger and stronger and stronger. See, we decide who wins this battle between the flesh and the spirit. So the flesh is fighting against the spirit, trying to destroy the spiritual things in our life. So we're left with one reasonable option. And he concludes it like this. If you look down in Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. He says, crucify the flesh. The Esau in each of us must die. Well, how do we kill it? It's a lifetime of telling the flesh no. It's telling the flesh no day in and day out for a lifetime. It's like a child 
that keeps asking you the same question over and over again. Can I have ice cream? Can I have ice cream? No. Can I have ice cream? No. Pretty please, can I have ice cream? No. Pretty please with the cherry on top, can I have ice cream? No. The answer is no. Eventually, they'll stop asking, right? They'll stop asking that specific question, but then they might ask you another question. Can I have chocolate ice cream or something different? See, that's the nature of the flesh, right? You tell it no long enough, it might stop asking for that specific thing. Eventually, it'll start asking for another thing. Give in to this desire. All right, they're not going to give in to that desire. Well, give in to this one, give in to this one, give in to this one. So what do we do? We just keep telling the flesh, no, it has to be crucified, but that crucifixion is going to take a lifetime. So look what Rebecca does here as she's having this struggle, this internal struggle, these two boys at each other's throats fighting against each other. It says, verse 22, so she went to inquire of the Lord. This is honorable. She does well by taking her problem to the Lord. When we have a problem, we should absolutely inquire of the Lord, but we also have to realize as we inquire of the Lord, he might not always give us the answer that we want to hear, but he'll give us the answer that we need to hear. So let's look at how the Lord answers Rebecca. Verse 22 But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. What happens? She inquires of the Lord. She asks God to answer this prayer, and the Lord does answer her. He answers her through his word. He answers her through the word. This is the third point. Pray the Lord would answer you through the word. He gives her a word. He speaks to her, okay? Pray the Lord would answer you through his word. When you pray, do you expect the Lord to answer you through the word. When you do your morning devotions, do you make the connection between what you're praying and what you're reading? Yeah? Some of you are like, all the time. It happens all the time. That's a good thing. But sometimes we don't. Sometimes we're praying a prayer and there's a disconnect between what we prayed and what we read and it comes down to different things. So often the Lord will answer us through the word. We're praying a prayer. He'll answer us even in that moment. Not every time, but often he will. He'll answer us through the word, but we don't always see it. Why? Well, oftentimes we don't expect to hear from him. We don't expect him to speak to us through his word. Other times, he's speaking to us, but we don't like the answer. We're like, oh, God, okay, I'll pretend I didn't pray that or read that. Um, And we don't like the answer that we receive from the Lord through his word. And other times, he answered us according to his word, but we just don't get it yet. And later down the road, maybe days, weeks, months, years later, we look back and we're like, wait a minute, God answered me according to my prayer through his word. It's fascinating how he does that. I just want to encourage you 
As you pray to the Lord in the mornings, expect him to speak to you through his word. He may not give you the exact answer to the prayer that you prayed or you may not understand or he may not speak to you about it at all that specific morning, but there's a reality that when we pray to God to speak to us through his word, he so often does. That's what he does here with Rebecca. He speaks to her through his word. And look what he says. <clears throat> Two nations are in your womb, so you don't just got twins, you got two nations in there. That's the problem. These two nations are at war against each other. It's a crazy thing to hear from the Lord. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. Look at this last part, very important. And the older shall serve the younger. Yes, Esau would be born first and he would serve Jacob. This is contrary to typical tradition. Usually the firstborn son would be the leader and the younger would follow. But this is more than just a practical thing. This is a spiritual thing. Remember, Esau is a picture of the flesh and Jacob is a picture of the spirit. Each and every one of us are born of the flesh before we're born of the Spirit. We're all born of the flesh, but Jesus tells us through the story with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 that we all must be born again. We must have a second birth. We must be born of the Spirit, and that's the picture here in this text. Now, there's also something interesting here. God chose Jacob. God chose Jacob in the womb or even before the foundations of the earth that he would be the one that would carry out the promise that was originally made to Abraham. We see this in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, if you flip there. Romans chapter 9, verse 10, he says, And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls." It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. This speaks of God's sovereign grace. He chose Jacob for his specific purposes. Now, it says Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated in context uh, in all actuality, when we look at that, it's more like Jacob I have accepted and Esau I have rejected. But that happened from the very beginning. God in his sovereignty, he chose Jacob over Esau. Why? Well, maybe because he knew what Esau would become. That's a legitimate reason. But the reality of it is we don't really know why he chose Jacob. It just says that he chose Jacob for his own specific purposes. Now that's interesting. God chooses people for his own specific purposes and we don't even always realize or can even understand why he chooses the people that he chose, why he chose Jacob over Esau. He simply did. Maybe we'll know when we get to heaven, but right now it's hard to say. They both weren't like 
you know, primetime people, but we do see, and we'll talk about this later, that Esau does walk away from the Lord, essentially. Genesis chapter 25, verse 24. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red. He was like a hairy garment all over. I can't imagine what that looked like. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew and Esau was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau, but he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So we see here that Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Esau and Jacob, they were very different, extremely different. They were twins, but like most siblings are, they were extremely different. Esau was a skillful hunter, and he brought back the food for Isaac. So Isaac loved him. And Jacob, it says, look at that word uh, there, describing Jacob. Um, it says, in verse 27, but Jacob was a mild man. This word mild is the word uh, complete or of good character, well-behaved, okay? So Jacob is a well-mannered, like good kid, and Esau is like kind of a wild child, uh, if you want to put it in these terms. Um, Esau's like the brawn and Isaac, sorry, Jacob's like the brains of the family and Isaac loves Esau because he gets to eat of the game, but Rebecca loved Jacob because of his brains. Any of you have a favorite child? Oh, you wouldn't tell me if you did, but we see here in scripture, some do. I won't get into my family because I don't know if this, they'll ever listen to this. I'm going to take that one back. <laughs> the Lord just shut my lips. Okay. All right. Verse 29. Now Jacob cooked the stew and Esau came in from the field and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, please feed me with that same red stew for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, sell me your birthright as of this day. So we see here uh, the birthright in the Bible, there's a, uh, a practical side and there's a spiritual side. There's a material side and there's a spiritual side. So let's look at that real quick. Uh, a couple examples really, really quick. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Verse 17. It says, But he shall acknowledge the son of the unloved wife as the firstborn, okay, the firstborn by, firstborn, by giving him a double portion of all that he has. So the firstborn received the birthright and he got a double portion of the inheritance from the father. So that's the practical, that's the material. Uh, flip with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 5. 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Verse 1 says, Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, he was indeed the firstborn, but 
Because he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that the, so that the genealogy is not listed according to the birthright. So the birthright was, a, was originally Reuben's, but because he sinned, it was given over to Joseph and eventually Joseph's sons. See, Joseph became the spiritual leader of the household once Jacob died right? Because he figured everything out in Egypt. He became the holder of the birthright. So the birthright, practically the son got a double portion, but spiritually he became the spiritual leader of the household once the father died, okay? So there's a lot to this birthright, but look what happens in verse 32 of Genesis chapter 26. And Esau said, look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? Okay. Esau isn't saying that he's going to starve to death in this moment and die. What he's saying is, what's the birthright to me? I'm going to die eventually. I'm going to die eventually. So what does it matter what I inherit? He's focused on the temporary pleasure, but he's not focused on the future inheritance. Okay, look what happens in verse 33. Then Jacob said, swear to me. As of this day, so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now look at this. We're beginning to see the manipulation and deceit of Jacob. This is the first sign of it in the book of Genesis. He's taking advantage of his brother. Let's think about this. What did God say? Look back to uh, verse 23, that last part. And the older shall serve the younger. Okay, so this was something that God said, that, that Jacob would lead Esau, that Esau would serve Jacob. But what Jacob is doing, he's taking the matter into his own hands. He's manipulating the situation and he's jumping the gun. He's manipulating his brother. Which brings me to the fourth point. Manipulation is rooted in mistrust. Manipulation is rooted in mistrust. Manipulation and deceit are all rooted in mistrust towards God. We manipulate or we deceive when we don't trust that God's going to take care of us. So we take matters into our own hands and we sin to try to manipulate a person so that we can get the benefit of the situation uh, of whatever's going on. See, he's trying to control the outcome of his own life. When God's got the control in his own hands, we can tend to do this too. We try to take control of our lives and we try to use whatever means to make sure that we're successful and we get what we need when we simply need to trust God. Don't raise your hands when I ask this question. Anyone in here struggle with control, with having to control things? Who are my gifted administrators out there? The gift of administration, the perversion of that gift is the desire to control things. It's a gift that God's given us and being very, very uh, uh, attention-oriented to, to details and different things in planning and organizing, but what that can lead to when we operate in that gift in our flesh is control. You can turn into a control freak. And this is Jacob's Sorry, this is Jacob's issue here. He's trying to manipulate. He's trying to control the situation. 
your life is much safer in the hands of God. And you won't experience true freedom until you completely let go of your control and surrender to the Lord. And that's what's going to happen later in Jacob's life. We'll see it a few chapters down the road. He finally gets to this place of surrender because he's been trying to manipulate and deceive and control his own destiny. When it's been in God's hands all along, he said from the beginning, the older shall serve the younger. Verse 34 says, and Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So Jacob, he gives Esau the bread and the stew. Esau, he sells his birthright for a cup of soup. For a cup of lentil soup. It wasn't even like mom's chili or like New England clam chowder or like couldn't it have been um, just like tortilla chicken soup or something like better? Like lentil soup. Come on, he sold his birthright for lentil soup. In all sincerity though, what's that? (laughs) Do you make really good lentil soup? (laughs) I actually enjoy lentil soup if it has sausage in it. (laughs) (laughs) in all sincerity though he gave up his inheritance to feed his fleshly desires you ever sell yourself short of god's blessings just for the moment and satisfaction of sin brings you the fifth and final point eternal treasure is better than temporary pleasure Eternal treasure is better than temporary pleasure. See, we don't usually say that I'd rather experience the satisfaction for that moment of pleasure that sin brings and I'm okay with the consequences that happen. That's not usually what we say. Usually when we give in to fleshly desires, that moment of satisfaction, we're not considering the consequences. We're not considering what's gonna come of that. No, we just focus on how fun the sin's gonna be, how joyful it's gonna be, how much satisfaction I'm gonna get for that temporary moment. Why do we do that? Well, it's part of our nature, and Jesus says it like this, men love darkness. There's something in us that loves darkness. We love the satisfaction that sin brings to us. But more often than not, when we give in to that fleshly desire, when we experience that temporary satisfaction, the regret that comes from that satisfaction lasts a very long long time. See, when we choose to sin, we're always going to lose. We need to ask ask ourselves when we're thinking about giving into that fleshly desire, when we're we're being tempted by the enemy and by our flesh, what are you willing to lose by doing this? Are you willing to lose everything? Esau was willing to lose everything for a cup of soup and bread. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 8, verse 6, for to be carnally minded is death, 
but to be spiritually minded is, is life and peace. That carnal mind giving into fleshly desires, it's going to lead to death. But when we're spiritually minded, it gives life and peace. When we're spiritually minded, we're going to be focused on investing into our futures, investing into our heavenly inheritance. We can gain more of a heavenly inheritance by doing certain things here on earth. We've talked about in the past, there's different crowns that we get here on earth for doing specific things. There's a crown of martyrdom, of evangelism. Um, There's so many different things. But when we're spiritually minded, we're focused on our heavenly inheritance, just like Jacob was. He's focused on the future. He's focused on what's going to come. He's not bound by these fleshly desires and living in the moment. And look what comes of it. That last part of verse 34, and this is where we'll close. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. He despised his birthright. Now it's like he gave it up and now he despised it. Why does he despise it? He's despised because he has to face the consequences of his sin. Do you ever get bitter at God when he makes you face the consequences of your sin? You get angry at God? God, how could you, why would you, why would you do this to me, Lord? The Lord's like, dude, no, I'm, I'm disciplining you because I love you. I'm challenging you in this thing. I'm giving you over to the consequences of your sin because I don't want you to fall back into the same thing. If you continue to fall back into the same thing, the consequences are just going to get worse. I'm trying to prevent you from that. So what God uses as a form of discipline, we look at as consequences, which can lead to us despising the Lord like Esau does, despising his birthright. See, what we do when we're faced with the consequences of our sin will reveal what our relationship with the Lord is really all about. Esau He despised his birthright and it ultimately led to him walking away from the Lord. Flip with me real quick to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. He says, lest there, uses Esau as an example of sin, lest there be any fornicator, profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau had no room for repentance in his heart. He was sorrowful because of the consequences that he faced, but he didn't have godly sorrow. See, godly sorrow leads to uh, repentance. He had worldly sorrow. He was just caught up with the consequences and what he lost. He didn't turn back to the Lord. He was pleading with the Lord, give me something like, give me back the birthright. I'm sorry that I lost this thing. Not, I'm sorry that I sinned against you, Lord. And he never came to a place of repentance. See, when we're faced, like I said, with the consequences of our sin, we can choose to get mad at God because of what he took away from us, or we could choose to draw to God because we know he loves us and he's giving us those consequences as a form of discipline. Uh, Father only disciplines the son whom he loves. And that's the example we see with David. See, David, after he um, 
committed adultery with Bathsheba and had Uriah killed, Bathsheba was impregnated. And what happened after Nathan the prophet approached him and, and spoke to him and revealed the sin to David, David confessed, he repented, and he was remorseful. And what happened? The child died. Though David confessed and repented, God still gave him a severe consequence for his actions. And what did David do immediately after the child died? He went and worshiped the Lord. He accepted the consequence. He realized God was trying to purge him of his sins. Though it was so painful, though he could hardly bear it, he chose to draw near to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord. It was true repentance. And in fact, speaking of this thing, uh, this specific circumstance, this specific sin, he writes in Psalm 51, he says, to you alone I sinned, Lord. I sinned against you. It's not about me facing the consequences of the death of my child. I know he may, I, I know I'll see him again, he says. But I know, Lord, I've sinned against you. I'm okay with facing these consequences because it's not about what I've lost. I know it's about what I've gained in the character that you're trying to produce in me because you love me. In this story, we see a comparison of two, two sons and this tale of two sons is going to continue on through the next few chapters. But we see the son of the flesh in Esau and we see the son of the spirit in Jacob, not that Jacob was perfect, it's just a picture. The son of the flesh was concerned with these temporary things that were going to satisfy for a moment, and he lived his life with regret. The son that represents the spirit was focused on the future. He was considering what's to come. That's a picture for us. We're to be focused on our heavenly inheritance. We're to be focused on the future. If I do this, how's it going to affect things in my life? What can I do today that's going to increase my heavenly inheritance? That's the picture. That's the lesson that we're to gain from this. So which son do you identify with more? Esau or Jacob? And maybe it's a little bit of both. Maybe you're going through that struggle right now, even in this moment. Maybe before you came to church, you were struggling with the flesh and the spirit. I want to go to church, but I'd rather watch this TV show, or I want to go to church, but I'd rather do this, or the flesh and the spirit is fighting, and you made the decision you gave into the spirit. It's a picture of the son who's considering his future. I pray that we would all choose to be sons that represent the spirit that we would consider our heavenly inheritance in every decision that we make on a daily basis we wouldn't be distracted or caught up with fleshly desires that might satisfy for a moment but are going to leave us with a lifetime of regret let's pray lord we thank you for your word we thank you for this story god we thank you God, that you give us stories of flawed people for us to learn from, to, to warn us of, of certain things. God, I pray, Lord, that we would take these things to heart, that we would be spiritually minded, focusing on not just our futures here on earth, but our futures in heaven. Lord, there's so much that you want for us. Lord, I pray 
that we would be heavenly minded, not giving into the things of the world and the things of our flesh. We love you in your name. Amen.